0: And welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. I'm here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham, And today, uh, we're going to be responding to a video from some Presbyterian brothers. Um, But before we get into that, just a reminder, we are on YouTube. Check out our channel, The Particular Baptist. Like, subscribe, hit that bell to get notified when we get new videos. Um, We're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, and follow our Facebook page as well. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sean. He will introduce uh, our topic today.
1: Yeah, so today's topic is actually going to be a little bit uh, difficult for, for the two of us. Um, we're going to be responding to some Presbyterian brothers, and, and they are brothers uh, as mm-hmm. as far as we know, but we, we believe them to be brothers. Uh, but it's it's going to be a little bit hard because some of the topics they bring up get right to the heart of the atonement and the nature of the covenant. And uh, we feel, in, in watching through this video that they uh, produced, that those are issues that uh, are, are critical. You need to know, and we we worry about the direction they go uh, in this, and we'd like to respond.
0: Yep. So we're going to be going through very. We're just like with the latent video. We're not going to go through the entire thing, but we found some key areas that we thought were important to discuss and address. Um, as it relates to covenant theology, so we're going to go ahead and dive into this now.
1: And I, I should note, the focus of this uh, video is on uh, covenant theology, specifically in the book of Hebrews. Yes. As we go through, we will uh, be discussing far more than Hebrews, but that is their focus in this video.
0: Right, right. Yeah, because Hebrews does flesh out um, covenant theology in great detail, and I think and and Pastor Boothie here will mention that this is a favorite book to go through for both sides, and I think because of its covenant theology. But yeah, we'll be kind of jumping all over the place today. All right, let's get
2: started. And continue my my education. So
3: yeah, and uh,
0: so before, actually, before I start, let me give a little bit of background. So this video is from the Reform Forum. It is a Presbyterian uh, minded podcasts and ministry. They, they do more than just the podcast. They've now ventured into um, actually giving formal classes uh, online. Um, and, and so they're moving into that realm. Um, and they have, I think some other teaching ministries that they use, but this is a big part of their ministry. They have a podcast, but both of these gentlemen, uh, Pastor Camden and Pastor Boothie are both OPC ministers Um, So they're coming at this from definitely a Presbyterian perspective, but more of a unique, I think it's a unique Presbyterian perspective to some extent. Um, So I just want to give a little bit of background on, on who these gentlemen are um, before we dive in. But what this clip is going to be talking about pastor Boothie here, he's moving, starting to move his argument into the book of Hebrews as it relates to covenant theology. And he Kind of lays out what I think is his hermeneutical methodology off the bat, and I think it's important uh, that we address this.
3: Uh, you did take the theology of Hebrews course, correct, with uh, right. with Lane Tipton? Yeah.
2: Yep. And so that's really when I decided to refine it to the Book of Hebrews, uh, because if you just took all of that, uh, you really have to, to to take you know covenant theology and ecclesiology and and uh, baptism. When, when you are focusing on those things, you, you really need to refine it down some. You can't just use the whole Bible. We want to use the whole Bible in our arguments uh, for those things, but but certainly in, in a work like uh, the, the thesis that I'm doing, I have to refine it to something. And I thought, uh, as I took that class with Tipton, which was so wonderful, uh, I just uh, gained so much from it. And I thought, I should refine it to the book of Hebrews. And yeah. a lot of it's also because both sides love to use that book uh, in their argument. Uh, that, yeah. and, and so that's, that's what so.
0: So I I think he is talking specifically in relation to his thesis that he wanted to refine it. And and that's, I guess that's okay. But when you're dealing with an issue or a topic such as this, you really can't do that. One that's not really proper methodology from a hermeneutical perspective. We don't just pick up our Bibles and say, we're just going to, you know, put all of our study into Hebrews without Taking into account what the rest of Scripture says about a given topic. Now he might very well do that in his paper, but in this video, they don't really do that. The focus is the Book of Hebrews.
1: Yeah, they will. They will allude to certain. They'll allude, portions but not of, exegete of Scripture. But yeah, the the only real exegesis that I I saw in here was when they go through Hebrews chapter ten. They do they do go through verse by verse through part of Hebrews chapter ten. Yes. But Everything else seemed to be a, a broad overview, or they might quote a verse or two, um, but uh, it wasn't a, a deep dive. Which, yeah, t- to to be fair to them, maybe that's just not what they were going for. But uh, in the in this type of video, it's more of a, a free flow discussion. But in terms of presenting an argument, uh, I would rather exegete several passages and compare them as opposed to talk generally what's going on, which Absolutely. hopefully we will, we will actually uh, do uh, during this podcast. Yeah, I, agreed. Yeah, and, and
0: when you are making biblical arguments from a hermeneutical perspective, you have to take into account other places in scripture that speak more clearly to a certain topic than, uh, than to others. And that's consistent with actually both of our confessions, with the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which talk about that in chapter one. So I I just want to point that out right off the bat. All right, moving along here. So now here they've started moving into the different types of covenants. So they're going to, I believe in here, they're going to start addressing Jeffrey Johnson, who wrote a book um, criticizing infant baptism. And they're going to talk about the conditional nature of the Mosaic covenant and whether or not that's biblically accurate or not
2: covenants of works. They're they're a covenant of works. Uh, So they do not hold that the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. And to quote uh, one uh, Baptist, Jeffrey Johnson, a reformed Baptist or a a particular federalist, Jeffrey Johnson in his book, uh, the fatal flaw of the theology behind infant baptism. (laughs) Watch out. Yeah. Any punches on that one? Sure. Uh, but he he writes the old covenant was not a covenant of grace because it was not rooted in grace, nor did it promise or dispense grace to its participants. Uh, Rather, it was a conditional covenant based upon works that eventually led to the condemnation of its participants. To put it plainly, the Mosaic covenant was not a part of the covenant of grace, but the covenant of works.
3: You're hurting me. You're killing me, Jeremy. Now, I know know you've got stuff lined up, but I can't hold my tongue. Um, (laughs) Number one, there's a prologue to the Ten Commandments. And the prologue, uh, the very first thing God says when he gives them the the law, at least in that codified form, is I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So the, the law is given on a foundation of grace to begin with. But uh, when, whenever you can read in more detail the Westminster Confession of Faith, what was just said comes directly at odds with seven, five and 8.6, which uh, I think very faithfully describes, you know, the relationship of the Old Covenant to the overarching covenant of grace in terms of how the grace of Jesus Christ was mediated to Old Covenant believers through promises, types, and sacrifices. So the substance is, is not different between Old and New Covenant. The substance is Jesus Christ. But the way that we receive the grace, uh, the the means by which we receive the grace comes in different in different forms. So, right.
0: So, this is really, I think, your typical standard Presbyterian covenant theology. You know that that the the covenants in the Old Testament really are simply just an administration of the covenant of grace. It's the same covenant, just administered in different ways. And they and uh, Pastor Camden here mentions Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 7, paragraph 5, which says, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel, and under the law it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, and the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying excuse me, Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious do the operation of the spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the old Testament. So you can see that it's really an administration from their perspective. While we would say, and this is from the second London Baptist confession of faith, we would say, quote, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, the new covenant. First of all, To Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, that's Genesis 3.15, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament and is founded in the eternal covenant transaction that was between the father and the son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved had obtained life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms in which Adam stood in a state of innocency. So we can see the difference here. We as particular Baptists would hold that it's simply a uh, revelation of the new covenant over time promised back through Adam because we do not believe that the new covenant comes or that a covenant is ratified um, without blood. It was promised to, to Adam of what would come. While Presbyterians say that this is um, just readministered that, that the covenant exists, but it's readministered through these different uh, types and symbols. Now they also say, they also talk about, um, you know, the Mosaic covenant not being a covenant works. Uh, we believe that it's not biblical. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is three chapters after the Ten Commandments were given, which is the Old Covenant, there's warnings and there are blessings. For instance, if you look in in verse 6 of chapter 8, it says, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land in a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron. Out of those hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full and shall bless the Lord your God for the, uh, for the land he has given you. So you can see blessings for obedience. And then you see the, the, uh, the opposite of that, down in starting in verse 18, you shall remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And, and it says in verse 19, if you forget the Lord, your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. So there is this conditional nature of the covenant. They, if they obey, they will live. If they disobey, they will die, which is the same consistent nature of the covenant of works even given to Adam. Even though Adam was perfect, even though Adam was innocent before he was saved, there was still a covenant of works that was given to him. You obey, you live, you disobey, you die. And you can see the same parallel here.
1: Yeah, I would like to to bring up one aspect uh that uh Pastor uh what was it Camden uh brought up in regards to the Mosaic covenant. Uh, he brings up the fact that in the Ten Commandments, it says that uh, God brought them out of the land of Egypt and says this proves in some sense that it's a covenant of grace. And I think this illustrates really the, the contrast between our two positions, because that happened before the covenant was enacted. The The giving of the law, sure, references a gracious act by God, but yes. it is not a part of that covenant. Right. And what we're saying is, when we call the mosaic covenant a covenant of works and not a covenant of grace, not that God cannot be gracious to His people while they are under this covenant, but that it's not coming through the covenant. It is a covenant of works. Yes. Uh, and going off what Dan said in, in Deuteronomy, I've got a couple other uh, passages I want to bring up. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty-seven, twenty-six. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Amen, yeah. So, there's a curse upon everyone, because who is going to be able to keep this this law? And in case somebody might try to make the argument that, no, this isn't actually part of the covenant, it says uh, later, uh, chapter 29, verse 1, but it, it is still in the same context, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So these are the words of the covenant that you uh, have to keep every portion of the law or you're under a curse. And You shall all... be
0: perfect as I am perfect, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Leviticus.
1: Um, and you shall, love, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, mm-hmm. strength. So yep. it's, it's, it's all there. And who who's done this? And that, this is the point that Paul brings up in uh, Galatians uh, chapter three, starting in verse 10. For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But, no, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. So Paul's argument is, no, the law isn't of faith, and that's why the law condemns. The Mosaic covenant can only condemn you. It cannot give you... Uh, grace god gives grace even to people under the mosaic covenant but it is not salvific grace because of the covenant
0: yeah Uh, and this is really a difference that you see between how the new the new and the old are are described the old requires the person to keep that covenant the new does not the new require uh, shows that god is working through all of it Um, if you go to hebrews 8 um beginning in verse uh uh, eight for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming to the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day. Uh, and this is funny when I took them out of the land of Egypt, out, uh, out of the land of Egypt for, and why? Because they did not continue in my covenant. It was conditional upon them obeying it. It was a covenant of works. And then he contrasts it, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, declares the Lord. I, that is God, will put my law in their minds, into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we see God doing all of the work in the new covenant in terms of keeping it. And we, we would say that would be Christ fulfilling the law on our behalf. Christ is Satisfying those requirements that were found under the old law, and we are no longer obligated to keep any conditions under the new law because those have been done for us already in Jesus Christ, and God is the one who initiates, and God is the one who works because the Israelites, they broke the old covenant. They can't keep God's law perfectly. So I think that's an important contrast to make between the two. Yeah. All righty. Anything else you want to add to that, Sean, before we move on?
1: No, I think the uh, – more will come out. Uh, they They do uh, address at least Jeremiah 31, so I'm sure we'll have more to say when that comes up.
0: Yes, yes. All right, then they they continue the discussion of um, Old Testament types, um, and this is another area where he uh, Pastor Camden here tries to make a parallel, or he yeah, he tries to make a parallel between the sacraments in the Old Testament and the Lord's Supper. I'm going to jump to that, and we're jumping around here today. Let's start a little earlier, give some context.
3: What what's happening in in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22? How, how do those different events relate to conditions and or relate to the new covenant, particularly seeing how Paul talks about it in Romans 4?
2: Right. Um, yeah, so so you're you're right, right on track there. Genesis three fifteen is is merely a promise. And so it is with all of the types and promises of the Old Covenant. I see.
3: They're,
2: they're, not, they're not, as Klein would say, you know, the, that, that, that the uh, realized eschatology is embodied in the Old Covenant by types and the sacrifices and those kind of things. And so uh, they, they see those as bare copies, uh, they, they see them as, as not having the substance of grace that Christ himself accomplishes on the cross as, as a means of communicating right. that. And so they're, they're just, they're, well, the, what Klein says is that it's not an empty shell. Right for them, it's an empty shell. It's just a shell. It's just a promise. It's just a revealing of the covenant of grace. But but those earthly types do not contain in them the grace and communicate grace nope, to the nope. participants in the old covenant. Right. And so all we have is revelations of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament is what they would say.
3: Yeah. This is a this 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 perhaps for a part two, but. Um, you you do mention, and we we have discussed at times about uh, Vosses or even Clowney's triangle, Clowney's appropriation of it for preaching, and one of my one of my good uh, Reformed Baptist friends uh, is certainly this is a sticking point between me and him on this issue, and and I've noticed that as well. For many Old Testament types, uh, they can they're not types in the way that Voss or Clowney would understand them to be proper types. They're symbols. So a symbol would be more or less. Just a vertical line from an earthly reality, demonstrating a heavenly reality in earthly pictures or in, in earthly forms, and then we have you can have them in old covenant uh, time periods or in new covenant time periods. But what you cannot have, as far as I've found in in uh, particular Baptist uh, typology, is a connection between an old testament type, we would call it a symbol, and a a consummate reality, such as the risen and ascended Christ. And so, whereas we would see circumcision pointing forward to Christ's circumcision on the cross, or we would see the sacrificial system, you know, even a, the blood of bulls and goats not being able to save in its own right, but it would have a sacramental effect, a communication of grace in which those who participated in Old Testament sacrifices by faith, they too would be receiving uh, the, the grace of the risen Christ, even though Christ hadn't even been incarnate yet. Just as we, through participation in the Lord's Supper, if we participate by grace through faith in the proper way, according to the word of the Lord, then we're receiving a benefit, uh, the grace of, of Christ uh, through ordinary means.
0: So, so I, I think this is not a very good parallel. And, and the reason why is because the nature of the Lord's Supper is not for those who, who who do not follow Christ. The, the nature of the Lord's Supper is for those who profess the name of Christ, who have true faith in Him and rest in Him alone for their salvation. And those actually who eat in disobedience and rebellion are cursed by it. There, there, is, a, there, there is a sense where a curse is brought upon them. Paul told Christians not to eat with, without cleansing themselves. And those who eat with, with sin in their hearts and that would include unbelievers um, would be certainly a curse because of that. However, the, the old Testament types of, of the ceremonial sacrifices, those were performed by a mixed community, those who were living in unbelief and those who were living in faith. And so it, you can't really take a ceremony or a, a, sacramental system, if you will, that was meant for believers, which is the Lord's Supper, under the new covenant, as Jesus said, in his blood, and apply that to a mixed community um, of those uh, who reject Christ in unbelief and say, well, this is for everybody in the same way that it was under the old covenant. I, so I think that falls into a category error, um, and is not really, uh, not really um, communicating his, uh, his argument properly.
1: I also think there's a significant problem here. He he didn't define what type of grace he was referring to, but if yeah. it's the same grace of the, the new covenant, are we talking about saving grace? And all of a sudden saving grace is coming through uh, the old covenant sacraments?
0: They seem in to imply case, that.
1: In which case, why is Rome wrong aside for the specifics? But conceptually, would Rome be wrong to say that saving grace is actually coming through the the sacraments there it's it's it's,
0: i mean he says you know that he's basically saying that you know they see the grace communicated to them Mm -hmm. and they believe by faith and then they're you know Mm -hmm. that that's the that seems to be salvific grace but
1: if it if it's not salvific grace which i I hope that's not what they're saying at all then you still have the issue of the substance of the new covenant which does transmit saving grace right um has has, well where where is that in the system it's not there
0: uh, Which I and, think is what they're trying to communicate here. They're saying that the substance of the new covenant is actually existing here in terms of um, that's well. I really, mean, especially if they say that the new covenant actually existed in the Old Testament and it's just being uh-huh. reministered. So I think they're trying to be consistent, um, but I just don't think it's a good parallel. I mean, you're the 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 Lord's Supper communicates grace to the believers who partake of it. You know, the the gospel is communicated to them. It spiritually nourishes them. It communicates spiritually that which they hold to by faith, but it does not save them. These are people who are already saved, and they're the ones who are supposed to be partaking of the Lord's Supper in the first place. Um, you you don't have those like in the old covenant who are mixed. You have people who are in unbelief and who are saved participating in the same event legitimately. It's only for those who believe in Christ who have cleansed themselves. Those, those are those are believers. Um, so yeah, I think that. There is a sense where he is communicating; he is saying that somehow salvific grace is being communicated here. There, there's no other way to be consistent with that if you're holding that the covenant of grace existed in one way or another in the yeah, Old if Testament. It, if it's
1: the the same grace of the same underlying covenant just administered differently, then it, it,
0: that's what it you're left to, with. That's yeah. what you're left with, and that's a problem. And that's a problem. Otherwise, um,
1: yeah. Yeah, it doesn't explain how people are are saved under the uh, the old covenant. Um, Right, I I do want to circle back to what he said at the beginning that um, Genesis three fifteen in our in particular Baptist theology is uh, merely a promise, whereas in uh, Presbyterian covenant theology they see it as a um, an actual enact the enactment of the uh, the covenant of grace. And I, I don't understand what, what about Genesis 3.15 makes you think it's a covenant. Because all it does say is um, the seed of the woman will crush the head of, of the serpent. It's, it's, a, it's a promise. It's saying what's going to happen. And God does that all the time. He tells the Israelites, he tells the judges, go out and uh, this army will be destroyed. We don't immediately look at that. It's like, oh, well, God said something that will happen. Therefore, this must be a covenant. Um, a covenant is not merely a promise. It's a sworn promise. It's often ratified with, with certain things, specifically blood. Um, so there's nothing immediately in the context of Genesis 3, 3.15 that screams to me, oh, God's enacting a covenant right, right now. Um, and, and they don't go into anything. Um, maybe they have something that they would bring out, but um, there's nothing in the context that I see that would demand it to be a covenant. And just because God promises something, and unless you truly are willing to say that each time God promises something in the, in the Bible that it's a separate covenant, I, I don't see why you would think that necessarily.
0: That's also not Paul's language in, in Galatians 3. He says in Galatians three fifteen to give a human example, brothers, and he's just gotten on talking about is it by faith or by works of the law and the righteous shall be by faith? Is to give a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but to one into your offspring who is Christ. So Christ was promised. And, and Paul sees a difference here. He he even says, This is what a covenant does. This is a difference. But now we have promises. So he's distinguishing between a covenant and a promise and applying that promise, referring to Christ coming, being given to Abraham. So Paul doesn't even see this as, as a, uh, as an actual covenant. Cause a covenant has to be ratified by blood, right? You, you can't just have, um, God make a promise. And like you said, if God makes a promise, every time he makes a, pro- is that a covenant? Every time he makes a promise. Uh, and we would say, no. Um, and we would see this in Hebrews chapter nine when he 's talking about redemption through the blood of Christ and, and he says uh, basically what a uh, what a covenant is ratified by and this is starting in verse sixteen for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not enforced as long as one as the one who made it is alive therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have to have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So the the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, which they don't exegete, by the way, he's clearly saying that this covenant cannot be ratified without blood. The old covenant had to be ratified with blood. Every covenant was ratified with blood in some way, shape, or form at at least in the ones in the old covenant, starting um, I think with Abraham and even Noah, I I think there, there was this ratification of covenants through blood and that had to be done under the first covenant. And so that had to be done here. There was this uh, without Christ dying, the new covenant was not ratified and it did not come into effect. So to say it existed back in the old covenant as a formal covenant would mean that Christ would have had to die way back when and not die in time when he did. Um, and that's really the whole point of the, the author of Hebrews here in chapter nine, using very clear language to communicate that. All, All right, right. I
1: think we're ready to move on to the next clip.
0: Okie dokie. All right. Then they start, they're continuing on with their discussion about sacraments. Um, and this is a key one. We think here talk about baptism and his entrance into the covenant.
1: Yes.
3: holy place on earth but into the holy the most holy place in the heavenly places and then brings us with him uh, clothed in in his uh, further clothing of a glorified body. So it's 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 so much better. So we see that copy shadow metaphor. It's not just an imposition on the text, but I think it's something natural and inherent and organic to it. I had a question here on the um, you mentioned the covenantal conditions and uh, or the conditional nature of the old covenant. And so, you know, circumcision was given to, to infants uh, in in some measure coupled. To-
0: Isn't it interesting that he says, just real quick, that he, he admits that there is a conditional nature to the old covenant, even though they're saying that it's a covenant of grace mm. that men must meet. But we, we, we would say the new covenant is a covenant of grace because there's nothing we have to do to enter it while there are certain conditions that you had to do in order to enter the covenant. Mm -hmm. Or
1: all conditions are met by God, essentially.
0: Yes, there are conditions, but they are met by God, and there's nothing we have to do. But they keep saying, well, it's a covenant of grace, all the while saying there are conditions that we actually have to meet in order to get into it, while the new covenant's clear that God is the one who does the work in meeting the demands of that covenant.
3: To the nature of the covenant therein. But yet we have, uh, even in the Credo Baptist position, you know, New Covenant, they would say baptism is somehow related to the New Covenant. Well, what else are we doing in, in, in Credo Baptism? The very obvious point to make, and this is always addressed, I mean, there are answers to this, but you can't, you can't baptize perfectly. So, and they, they would recognize that, obviously, that there are people who have been water baptized that are not believers. They might profess falsely or didn't know what they were doing or who who knows Uh, but here's the question what happened Uh, have they broken anything Uh, or is the water baptism I I guess the nature of my question is is it a sign of the covenant and if it is a sign of covenant membership how does it actually relate to real covenant membership then
2: yes so uh, I think that they would say um, that, uh, as you mentioned, we, we can't know for sure whether or not someone is truly regenerate or not, but we we look for the profession of faith, and, and uh, then we'll allow them to, to be baptized based upon that. Now, <clears throat> They'll, they'll tell you that when someone apostatizes, because they won't say that there's no apostasy whatsoever in the new covenant, but when someone does apostatize, it's, there, it's a falling away from their confession or their profession of faith. Okay. It's not a falling away from that covenant. And so what they would do is they would say, well, uh, they're not, they're not so much falling away from the covenant, they were never truly of us to begin with. They were never truly involved. We, we made a mistake, in essence, I think is what they would say, because we can't read hearts. Only Christ can read hearts. So we can't know for sure, but, but we, we're doing the best we can by the signs that we're we're told to to use, namely the profession of faith. They might say as as Peter does, you know, repent and be baptized. And so we're looking for faith and repentance and uh, and, and we'll baptize. That's that's kind of the sign we're given. And so I I do think you're right, you're onto something. There seems to be a disconnect then between You baptize the person that that brought them into something, and so they're falling away. It's not just a falling away from just a profession of faith. It's a falling away from the covenant. And I I make that point explicitly in the paper. We'll get So
0: what part of Matthew 28 do, do these brothers not understand? When Jesus talks about baptism, he says you are baptizing disciples, people who are already saved, who are part of the new covenant, by virtue of their belief in Christ, and then they are baptized. Jesus does not put this order on, okay, you baptize, then they become disciples. They are disciples, then they need to be baptized. So there is this, I I think on their end, a disconnect between what our Lord's commissions with regards to baptism as a sign of the covenant after you have entered into it, but certainly not uh, the condition by which you must enter it. Um, so I think they get them backwards here. Now, I think he, he, does rep- he does represent our position accurately, I think. We would say that if you do fall away, you are falling away from your profession because we can't, we can't see hearts. We don't know for sure 100% everyone who is in the covenant, but we would say that they fell away from their profession, not from the covenant, and certainly not because of their, uh, because of their baptism. Keep going, because uh, he actually says the most interesting
1: thing, I think, right next, which is sure. what I wanted to react to.
2: ...to it later on. Sure. You know, that it's that this apostasy is not, it's a falling away from the new covenant, um, because, because their baptism brought them into it, and we'll make that more clear as we move along. Sure. Right, well, so, why don't you...
1: Yeah, hit pause here. What he just said was, baptism brings you into the new covenant. And uh, that would be what we have a, a major problem with. Uh, baptism does not bring you into the new covenant. And um, it's actually sort of ironic coming from a Presbyterian perspective because they are, they're the ones that want to tie circumcision so closely to baptism that it's, it's almost a one-for-one, one, or maybe it is even a one-for-one one parallel, depending on how they would articulate it. Uh, but in the old covenant, baptism didn't make you a member of the old covenant. And I have, I have several uh, passages I, I want to go through to basically prove that point. Um, so where I would want to go first is actually Joshua chapter five. You, meant, um, you mean circumcision? Oh, what did I say? Baptism? You said baptism, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. uh, c- sorry. Circumcision did not put you into the old covenant. It did not. Um, and there's there's several passages that will demonstrate this. Um, Joshua chapter five, the Israelites that are currently in the land have to be circumcised because they weren't circumcised. So starting at verse two, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, "Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time." So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hills of at the hills of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who had came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war uh, who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land, which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us. Um, and it, it continues on, but it just reiterates that these people were not circumcised. So my question is, were were they members of the covenant already? Because the covenant had been ratified all the way at the end of Deuteronomy. We we read some of the, the portions of that earlier. Um, So obviously, they're in the covenant. Um, I'll I'll even read a a little bit from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting at verse 10. All of you uh, stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives also, the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you and just as he has sworn to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord, our God, as well as with him who is not with here with us today. So the covenant has already been ratified. The people have gone into the land. In Joshua, they're already in the land. They've just crossed over. Uh, They've gone with the Ark of the Covenant, and yet they're not circumcised, and yet they're in the New Covenant, or sorry, the Old Covenant. And even in this portion from Deuteronomy, it makes it plain that he's making the uh, covenant with people that aren't there today, i.e. descendants. Um, So the descendants are in the uh, Old Covenant, regardless of whether or not they've been circumcised. And this is actually even evident from the Abrahamic covenant, because in the giving of uh, the sign of circumcision in Genesis uh, chapter 17, verse 14, it says, and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if circumcision is the entrance into the covenant, how could he have broken the covenant if he hasn't entered into it yet? It's impossible. It's impossible. So the point is that circumcision is not the entrance into the covenant. And for someone who wants to parallel that to baptism, then they should not believe baptism is entrance into the covenant either. And so it, it's, very, it's, it's a very interesting uh, uh, thought. But what is it that actually enters, into, enters you into the new covenant? Because this is critical, right? We cannot get this right. part wrong. Uh, right. If you don't know how you've come into the, the new covenant or how y- people do come into the new covenant, people might get confused and think they're in the new covenant when they're not. And that is, that is very dangerous. It's dangerous. Uh, people think they're safe and they're not. Uh, you, are, you actually are uh, entered into the new covenant by circumcision, funnily enough, but it's circumcision of the heart. Right. That that is that is the true circumcision that enters you into the new covenant,
0: which is what physical circumcision was pointing to all along.
1: Was pointing to, but didn't actually just because you are circumcised didn't mean you are regenerate. If you are right. circumcised of the heart, you will be regenerate.
0: That's exactly right. Are,
1: it, it, that's what that means. So, it it is critical and that's that's why this is one of the reasons why we did this podcast today. Uh, this is a critical issue. Enter, how, how one enters into the new covenant is not something that can be glossed over. While we, we do think these, these uh, brothers are brothers, this is a very important issue.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, and I, I think we'll be talking about this a little bit later, this, we're going to start talking about the blood of the covenant, of the new covenant, and they're going to try and parallel that in the same exact way with the Old Testament sacrifices. And I think there's this desire among our Presbyterian brothers. They're trying to draw these exact one to, apples to apples comparisons between elements of the old covenant elements of the new that they end up uh, falling into these pitfalls. And this is why we have to not take the mentality of pastor Boothie in the beginning of focusing so much on one area of scripture that we neglect the others. Even if you're not trying to, you can't do that with this topic, this topic is one that requires us to look at all of Scripture and what has Scripture clearly said about this topic and use that to inform the less clear. Again, that's a standard that we, in both of our confessions, that we hold to explicitly. So we have to utilize that. And I think that's that's what we're trying to do here today. We're trying to show from other places in Scripture that speak very clearly on the natures of, of the covenant using explicit language about the covenant and the conditions thereof to help inform our understanding of the Bible's covenant theology. Okie dokie. Now let's move on. I, I think this next clip here is, is uh 3035 is basically saying the same thing. So let's move on to 38. 38 minute mark here. And again, we're we're jumping around. Um, we're just hitting the important points here. Let's start a little early to give some context.
2: So, so to speak, uh, in Christ. But but what, that's not the point of the author of Hebrews. He is not trying to say it's already begun but, but uh, not fully there. He's trying to say that the rest uh, of, of the promised eternal inheritance, we haven't arrived there. Just as Israel hadn't arrived yet in Canaan uh, while they were in the wilderness, so too we're, we're in the wilderness. And, and so the Sabbath thrust still remains.
3: Yeah, they were delivered so. from slavery, but they weren't yet yes. in the promised land.
2: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of minor points I think that would be would be helpful to draw out of Hebrews 3 and 4 um, uh, that, that, that might challenge the notion of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant being under a covenant of works. Um, first of all, I, I think it's really helpful to, to point out how Israel is not only spoken of as not entering the land of Canaan because of disobedience, but also if you look at chapter three verse nineteen, it says that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Mm. They had the, the, the author says they had the good news preached to them, just as we have. But they didn't that first generation did not enter because of unbelief. Now if it only spoke of disobedience, then we might go go, okay, well that seems to suggest more of a covenant of words. But he goes on also to talk about faith, and I think that implies uh, necessarily along with it uh, a notion of grace and being under a, an administration of grace, because it's, it's not only by, by works or, or by disobedience that they didn't enter, but namely because they, they didn't enter because of a lack of faith. And so if you also look um, at uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 11— and building off of what we just said, it says that we, under the new covenant, can fail to enter God's rest by the same sort of disobedience. Correct. And so, disobedience is 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 suggesting, as a, a maybe a particular federalist would say, disobedience. Their failure to enter because of disobedience is showing they're under a covenant of works. Well, does that mean that we then are under a covenant of works and can right. fail to enter? The, the promised eternal inheritance, God's rest because of disobedience? Mm-hmm. Of course not. And I, I think we have to recognize then what type of disobedience or obedience was required of them.
0: So I think this goes back to having a proper hermeneutic and, and understanding who is the writer of Hebrews talking to. Now, I, I was talking with Sean about this earlier. R.C. Sproul does not appear, who, is, who was a Presbyterian, A prominent Presbyterian did not hold to this view. He did not, as it appears from uh, looking at the Reformation Study Bible, who he was the general editor of. He says in his note on chapter Hebrews three verses twelve and thirteen, he says the author addresses his readers in terms of their confession of faith as brothers, yet also recognizes that some within the Christian fellowship may have an evil, unbelieving heart. Christ saves completely those who come to God through Him. The Christians must guard their own in each other's endurance by encouraging one another as the author does throughout this letter. So he's addressing those based on their confession. He's not, the writer is not assuming that they are all within the new covenant and there's this mixture. He's assumed he's just calling them brothers based on their confession, knowing that there are those who have a confession of faith that will fall away or that could fall away. And we don't believe in a hypothetical Mm -hmm. falling away as they will um, talk about before we believe in actual apostasy We believe Hebrews six means what it says when it talks about those who fall away, but we don't believe. And we reject that those who are truly saved and who truly have faith in Christ will, um, will not fall away. We, we, or they will fall away. We believe wholeheartedly that those who believe in Christ will persevere to the end. And then as we're going to talk about in Hebrews eight, nine, and 10, um, what is the nature of the atonement, and what does Christ's mediation of that sacra- of, of the new covenant mean for those who are under the covenant? Is it soteriological as it, a, uh, as it includes everybody, or is it really talking about a mixed community? So I think it's important from a hermeneutical perspective, who is the author of Hebrews talking to, based on what we know in other places of scripture, also here obviously as well, but taking all of scripture into account, who is he talking to based on what we know about the atonement, based on what we know about salvation, the elect, etc. So So I think that's an important uh, topic to bring up.
1: I also want to bring up uh, the, the sort of confusion. It's, it's similar to bringing the, uh, um, the fact that God brought them out of uh, Egypt into the, the old covenant. Um, every single person that did enter the land was a covenant breaker of the old covenant. Not one of them kept it. And as, as we've, as we've seen, everyone is under a curse who hasn't kept the entirety of that. Every single they person. They weren't
0: circumcised.
1: <laughs> oh, actually. Yeah. Actually. The the people that entered into the land weren't circumcised because they were yeah. the
0: second generation. Cause, cause the first generation yeah. did not enter as it says here in, in chapter three, uh, verse 19, which he just said, so we see that they were unable to enter. Let's talk about the land because of their unbelief. And that mm-hmm. would include Moses, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so this would have been the second generation that had broken the covenant mm-hmm. and was not keeping the, the covenant because they weren't circumcised, at least in, in that sense. So mm-hmm. yeah, they, they had all broken it.
1: So my question would be then, wh- why does anybody enter into the land? And it is because of grace, obviously. It has to be because they, they failed to keep the covenant. right? But is that the grace of the Mosaic covenant that allowed them to enter into the land? I would I would say no. God is being gracious; He's letting uh, some of them enter into the land, but not because of their, not because of the keeping of the Mosaic covenant. It has nothing to do with the Mosaic covenant. If you want to attach it to any covenant, it's it's the promise to Abraham. But it's not because of their keeping the covenant that allowed them to enter into the land, which is what he's saying for the parallel to the New Testament church, you have to keep the covenant in order to be en- enter the, the, the true promised land, uh, the true rest that God gives. Um, and we, we see this in, in other times during uh, the history, uh, during uh, biblical history as well. David commits adultery. The penalty under the Mosaic law for adultery is death.
0: Mm-hmm. Capital punishment.
1: And yet, and yet God does not tell, um, oh, who's the prophet? Is it Nathan. Nathan. Does not tell Nathan to go and make sure that David's killed. Well, what, what's going on here? Isn't he, he, he broke the covenant. He's a covenant breaker. Shouldn't he get the result of that, the, the broken covenant? The answer is no, because of grace. But that grace is being applied outside of the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant only says David needs to die. God gives grace. It's in spite that, of it. It's in spite of it. God <coughs> gives grace, and that grace is actually still dependent upon the coming sacrifice of Christ. God's, in a sense, writing a, writing a check. It'll need to be cashed at some point. Right. But the atonement for David's sin under the Mosaic Covenant will be achieved by the New Covenant. It's not present in the Old Covenant. That substance is not there. The Mosaic Covenant can only condemn.
0: Right. Well, and, and going back to Jeremiah 31, you know, the days are coming to close the Lord when I will establish a new covenant. It obviously can't have been established if he's saying it's going to happen in the future mm-hmm. while being in the old Testament. So, yes, but that's a very good point about the talking about grace as it relates. It's in spite of the old covenants demands. God, God's not giving exceptions to the rule. He's not, you know, uh, shortening the standard or, or, mm-hmm. you know, winking at sin. He's simply ensuring that his prom the promise is kept for Christ to come, especially for David, because Jesus w- was promised to come through David's line and would sit on the throne of David eternally. That that's a you know, that's a that's a key uh key point there. But God gives grace in spite of uh, the old covenant's demands mm-hmm. because of what God has promised down the road, not mm-hmm. because of that covenant's inherent grace. Mm-hmm.
1: And you can say, in a sense, there is grace even through the uh, Mosaic Covenant because there is Christ in type and shadow, and that's how the gospel is preached to them, and those that believe in that type and shadow are partaking of Christ in that sense. But that is not the substance of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant can only condemn. That is its substance. If there's a, a typological aspect that is gracious, but that's not the substance of that covenant.
0: Right, and that's what Paul talks about in in the book of Romans, the law condemning and that the law reveals sin. The law isn't bad, but it kills you. He talks about this in Romans 7, you know, in the law, I died. You know, it it does not bring salvation in and of itself. It only condemns because we can't keep it. The standard that God has set is perfection, which we cannot keep. And, And so we will continue to break that covenant and we cannot find salvation and salvific grace mm-hmm. in that covenant specifically, inherently, okay. I should say. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to. Before we move on, I want to bring up one
1: last uh, passage. This is from Galatians chapter four, beginning at verse twenty-two. For it is written that Abraham had two sons: the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he who of uh, he of the free woman uh, through promise. Which things are symbolic. For these are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who did, do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many, chil- many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So Paul here is saying there are two covenants. One corresponds to Mount Sinai, and one is what they're in now. Uh, the one according to Ma- uh, that corresponds to Mount Sinai has to be the Mosaic covenant. That's where the law right. was even. Yep. And he's saying this covenant puts you into slavery, but the new covenant doesn't uh, because its mm. promises are, are, are different. So how can you say that the substance of these two are the same? No. I've, I've said it multiple times and it has to be reiterated. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, can only condemn you it cannot give you in of itself the grace by which you would be saved
0: yep that's um, amen
1: Yep, and then it's alluded to here how one going back to how does one enter into the the new covenant um uh um uh verse 29 but as he who is born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit even so it is now how did you enter into the, the uh, Mosaic Covenant? Well, we, we've gone over it a little bit. You were just born, right? It was made with Abraham, well, the Abrahamic Covenant was, but even the Mosaic Covenant was uh, made with those that were there and those were not there in that day. It, by nature of you being born, you entered into that covenant. And in a sense, you enter into the New Covenant also by being born, but not of physical not uh, according to the flesh, right, but uh being born of the spirit, being born of God, that is your entrance into the new covenant,
0: yeah, so there are certainly parallels between the two. We would absolutely agree with that, but there there's no one to one comparison in terms of functionality necessarily, um and I think that again that's where I think the error of our Presbyterian brothers is there's just There tries to be such a strong parallel between the two that they miss. The, that their substances of those covenants are completely different and their purposes are completely different. Yep. Okie dokie, moving on here.
3: Do the things that the Lord has called them to do, they eventually will be exiled and removed from, from the land just as Adam was from the garden. But what's different between... Uh, what's going on in the covenant of works and what's going on uh, specifically in the theocracy is it is not a strict works principle at all. It's it's typologically and provisionally reproportioned yes. because in the covenant of works, it is pure and strict works. Adam was called to offer uh, perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience, and there was no opportunity for him to repent. Once he broke that covenant, it's done. Uh, You're out of here. Uh, we you can't have,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know if you had more to go on after this, but I, I do want to I'll address suspicion. this right now because this right here, he's actually doing something different. Uh, because Adam was given an opportunity to repent after after the uh, after the fall. It's not underneath the covenant works, but he is given an opportunity to pre- uh, repent. The gospel was preached to him. The proto evangelion Genesis. 18. Yeah, the gospel is <laughs> preached to him. Now, I don't think scripture says clearly whether or not he did repent, um, so I wouldn't say that he was saved, but he didn't die immediately and go to hell. He was he was given the opportunity to repent. Um, similarly, yes, we do see, oh, and I think actually he's going to go into this, so maybe uh, continue playing it, actually.
0: Yeah, uh, and it's very interesting that Genesis 3.15, which they say is the new covenant, we would say is the promise. Adam... And I think there, we can say safely that Adam believed in Christ and he believed in the covenant. I, I don't think he would have remained um, being the important figure that he was in scripture and, and uh, being an unbeliever, but yeah, he did have the opportunity to repent. Look, here's, what's going to come. Even Adam, you're, you're a descendant. He's going to your, uh, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Believe in that, that that's your, that's your hope. That's what you need to rest in to save you from the sin that you fell into which was this eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So yeah, that's a, that's a great point
3: of uh, a sinner in the midst of this Holy realm, but Israel is called to repent of her sins. His sins, I should say son of God uh, f- for how, how many years. <laughs> and they're, they sent the prophets time and time again, prosecuting this covenantal case against them, but yet giving them opportunity to repent and return to the Lord and to be forgiven. This is not a, a a conditional works uh covenant simpliciter. It can't be.
1: So yeah, I don't know if you had more after this, but that I, that was I what I wanted good. what I wanted to get to. Yes, Israel was constantly given opportunities to repent. Absolutely. Does that come from the substance of the Mosaic covenant though? No, just like Adam was given a, a opportunity to repent even though he had already ruined his chances under the covenant of works that he was under same with, uh, Israel, they, they failed, they broke the covenant and yet they're still given an opportunity to repent, not unto keeping the Mosaic law perfectly now on as, as if they could even do that. Right. Uh, they were still given the opportunity to repent, but that's coming from something different other than the substance of the Mosaic covenant. And um, that is, once again, an application of God's grace, and even sort of gracious in the sense of the Mosaic covenant is showing their sins so that they, they know they need to repent, but the grace is not coming from the substance of the Mosaic covenant, and we're still waiting on the new covenant so God's, um, God can be shown to be just in giving grace to these people that deserve death. Uh, that still needs to happen. Uh, in order for these people to be uh, truly saved, well, they are—they are saved, but you know what I mean. The, the substance of it hasn't happened
0: yet, and right, yeah, they—they they still have to have those sins paid for. Otherwise, God is not just. He's just yes. letting them off the hook for. Hey, you broke my covenant. You know what? We're just going to, um, you know, I'm just going to skirt the the requirements of my own law and show God is not really holy and He's not really just at that point. It has to exactly. be paid for. And this yep. is why we emphasize so much as Christians, and I know these brothers would too. I don't want to uh, throw them to the side for that. The righteousness of Jesus Christ as fulfilling the the requirements of the law as it relates to those things that we could not hold to, but they're still they're being inconsistent in upholding their form of covenant theology. But that's I think why we would hold to that. Jesus Christ had to fulfill those laws that we couldn't keep. We could not keep them, and so. I think it's very important that we we understand it in that fashion. The grace that was given was on the basis of what was to come, not because of the inheritance of uh, the substance of the covenant of works of the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, you name it. It was because of the grace that was to come. They could believe in Jesus Christ, even though he hadn't come yet, even though he hadn't actually died on the cross and paid for their sins in time, God could still account them as righteous on the basis of what was to come. And therefore he could, genuinely say hey yes i'm going to bring you back i'm going to receive you because the covenant that i've given you isn't going to work and the writer of hebrews talks about that the old covenant was faulty it was faulty it could not pay for sins it could not deal with the sin problem and so there needed to be a new covenant that could deal with that and we find that rest in christ his righteousness and his death on the cross um and that's what you know we're going to talk about that a little bit later about christ's atonement as it relates to that but um, yeah, that, that's a great point. That's a great point. righty, So let's move on here. Now this next clip we're going to play, um, this was, so when we started talking about this, Reform Forum had put out a clip that included what we're going to play here, at least I think it has all of it in here. And it addresses the wilderness nature of Israel and tries to parallel that with the church today. And this is what kind of got us into thinking okay, you know, is this something we can respond to? Um, so this is kind of what kicked this discussion off from our end, anyways. I'm sure, I got the right section
2: here. Community to Israel in the wilderness. Uh, why would he use that time? in Israel's history when apostasy from the covenant was a very real possibility to illustrate the present situation of the church. Uh, I think that, the, the, that he situates the church in the wilderness experience analogous to Israel's time of sojourning. I think that renders suspect from the very beginning uh, the cradle Baptist interpretation of, of Jeremiah 31, for example, that they're a regenerate-only community. Because why why in Israel's history, when they, they could fall away from the covenant, why would that be the illustration for us under the new covenant when, when no one can fall away from the new covenant? And so the wilderness really helps us because just as Psalm 95 said, the wilderness is a time of testing for the people of God. No matter what context you're in, wilderness always implies the testing. The testing of what? The testing of faith. And your... Uh, you have wilderness works that will come out of your faith. And that's what we, we're we to, to demonstrate. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Whoever enters God's rest, that is, whoever enters, I think what he's saying, whoever enters the paradise of the new heavens, new earth, will rest from his works as God did from his. Oh, so we do have works. We're supposed to have these wilderness works that are manifested from our faith. And the whole wilderness time is is bringing about the testing of our faith, it, it's actually a good thing for us that we might show forth our faith by our good wilderness works. And so so we got to understand the life setting, because that's that's going to shake then the paranetic uh, thrust of right. the book of Hebrews.
3: The exhortation, right. Yeah.
0: So this is going back to, I, I think it's Hebrews chapter 3, verses, starting in verse 7, right? Where he talks about, um, um, if you hear his voice, don't harden his hearts as they did in mm-hmm. the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said mm-hmm. they would go astray in their hearts. So do you want to uh, address that, John?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll always start it off. Um, there's an implicit assumption that uh, because he's basically assuming that the people being referred to here are definitely in the new covenant. And we would, we would just oh, not, yeah. he's we would not agree. Yep. We don't even reading through Hebrews three and four, I don't see that coming out. And then you contrast it with a, the rest of scripture and even b the rest of the book of Hebrews. Um, the, it, it's not an, it's not a possible interpretation. Uh, he he seems his, his hermeneutic seems to be okay. There's a parallel and he, he he didn't read through the text but he's he and he did correctly identify it. there is a parallel but he's a parallel there's a parallel here it has to be a covenant for covenant parallel right and we would we would disagree we would say that no it's a visible people of god for visible people of god parallel there's nothing in the context that i see that demands it be oh he's he's talking about being in the new, the, the new covenant here. But the parallel is, hey, in the visible people of God, people fell away in the wilderness. And we know people are going to fell away in this wilderness um, uh, in the new covenant era. That doesn't mean they were in the new covenant. If we have promises of the new covenant that every single person in it will be regenerate, will be saved, then we know, okay, that person fell. Well, they may have been in the visible people of God, they, they, they weren't in the new covenant. I listening to this, I need a little bit more of the exegesis out of this passage that would suggest, Oh, these people were definitely in the new covenant. You can't just assume it because there was a parallel there because there's a lot of parallels that could be made uh, out of this, but it it needs, it needs to be contextual. And I can't, I I can't make that parallel.
0: Yeah, especially what we see in in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And and maybe we can take this time to talk about this for a second. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, chapter 8 lays out that the old covenant was faulty. It does not save. It does not deal with the problem of sin. Um, And, it, you know, it says in verse 6, you know, that then the old, as the covenant he mediates, is better since it is acting a better promise for what the, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no uh, occasion to look for a second. So, you know, he's starting to lay out what the new covenant is. And he quotes Jeremiah 31, which we've already exegeted. And speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is grow- and growing old is ready to vanish away. So basically, when Jeremiah declared that the new covenant was coming, the old covenant was as good as dead, so to speak. It was basically, it was so sure that it was going to happen. It was as good as dead. But then we see what the new covenant entails in terms of its purpose. So Christ comes on the scene. He ratifies the new covenant, as we talked about in chapter nine, through his blood, because a covenant has to be ratified through death. But it says in in chapter nine, verse 15, the writer, he's just got done, um, talking about blood of bulls and goats and how much better Christ's sacrifice is. He says, therefore, he is, that is Christ. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. How can this be talking about a mixed community under the new covenant? When it's clearly talked about here, Christ is now the mediator of this new covenant through his blood, and what he has accomplished is redemption and forgiveness of sins. That cannot, be applying, that cannot be applied to those who fall away. And I think these brothers would absolutely agree with that, that Christ, and we would agree with this, Christ only died for the elect. How in the world could his, um, how could the world could, through his death, his work on the cross, achieve eternal salvation for those who fall away? And this is why we can say that chapter three and four are not talking about a mixed an actual mixed covenant community. We would say it's a mixed community based on their profession or confession of faith. Um, and I think that's where the parallel is being made, as you said, Sean. But we have to again, we have to take all of scripture, we have to follow the uh the author's argument. We can't just Say Well, you know, it looks like this right here, and this is where we're mm-hmm. going to go with this. And so we have to take all of the author's arguments. What is he talking about? I mean, chapters 8, 9, and at least the, probably the first half of chapter 10 are expounding upon the new covenant. Here's what the new covenant means. It's Christ mediating for his people, et- securing eternal redemption, becoming the great high priest that he is in place of what the old high priest would do. Christ is now through his once-for-all sacrifice now the mediator of that covenant. Christ doesn't mediate for people who fall away or people who are vetted out through um, this wilderness period, so to speak. So again, a a proper hermeneutical understanding is key to having a proper understanding of biblical covenant theology. It's absolutely crucial. Yeah. All righty. Moving along here.
1: How many clips more clips Uh, do we have here, Dan? Two or three? Three, three. All
0: right, so we are nearing the end.
1: Yeah, sorry guys, long episode today, but important.
0: Yes, important, and and this is, you know, we're by no means giving an exhaustive overview of covenant theology, but we're we're hitting some of the main, I think, key differences between our Presbyterian brother and and these uh, and and particular Baptist covenant Mm -hmm. theology. Now there are some nuances I think that were. there that is these a, brothers have that I don't think okay. represents mainstream Presbyterianism, but um, a lot of what they talk about, I think, represents mainstream mm-hmm. Presbyterianism. And
1: we should actually also say that we are 1689 Federalists. There is a, another yes. form of Reformed Baptist Covenant theology, which is actually what I can tell uh, closer, a lot closer to the Presbyterian form. Uh, but when we speak we're purely representing 1689 federalism we're not uh, yes, saying we where we 100% speak for all reformed baptists as a whole
3: right particular baptist understanding of the warnings is it merely hypothetical that these are yeah, it's 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 a warning meant to meant to exhort and encourage but it's not something that could actually happen
2: right i i i don't know that there's one view that the the particular Baptists would have on this i think some do hold to a hypothetical warning saying so sean have you ever heard of any reformed
0: baptist holding to a hypothetical warning or hypothetical falling away i, I can't um, i am not aware and I'm, I'm willing to be corrected but i i've never so not aware of that actually happening
1: maybe i can't i can't think of anyone specifically i, I will say for myself in some sense it's a hypothetical warning but it's not merely a hypothetical warning like the elect are going to see the warning and that is the means by which they will persevere we, we understand that uh god yes used means to call us into the faith but somehow it sort of gets lost and that god would use means to keep us in the faith
0: yeah he seems and, to imply that there are particular baptists who think that the warnings are merely hypothetical
1: yeah yeah and we, we, the, the warnings are not merely hypothetical. There is a, a real apostasy. We just don't think it's apostasy from the new covenant.
2: Right. Think that Well, he gives the warning, and it's effectual because it will cause the elect in the new covenant church, uh, the warning will, will, will help them not to fall away. But it's a hypothetical situation in that it can't really happen. Uh, because someone who's, elect we agree, someone who's truly elect can't fall away. Right. But, they say because because that can't happen, uh, it's just a hypothetical warning uh, directed at at the elect to, to to bolster their faith and to to, to help uh, them to to go on to maturity and so on and so forth. Um, I think they would probably also say it's you know for any unbeliever who may be hearing the warning, you know it's also good for them. But some hold to the hypothetical. Others might just say, well, it's it's a it's a warning, and people can fall away. But but they're not people in the new covenant. Again, they're superficially attached, so to speak. Or uh, but they're not truly in the new right. covenant. They're not truly of us. And so uh, it's 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 meant to be addressed to to uh, people outside of the covenant community who may be hearing. They they might uh, have given an initial profession, but they could fall away because they're not they're not really in the covenant anyway.
0: Okay. So yeah, that would be really what we would yeah. hold to, and that's what our confession actually holds to. Um, in chapter twenty six, paragraph three, it says. The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always hath had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world, and to the end thereof, of such as believe in him and make profession of his name. So we we hold that there are mixture and there are errors in the visible church, but we would hold that the pure church is, are those who actually believe in Jesus Christ. The invisible church is what we would call it. Mm-hmm. So just wanted yeah. to point that out. All righty, next clip. We are almost done, everybody. Almost done. All right. Now they, and I'll just this. Now they start getting into talking about Jeremiah 31. Again, they don't actually exegete Jeremiah 31. They, they kind of talk about it a little bit, um, but we
2: think that that this is important. The only community, even in this age, and then. But then he goes on in verses nineteen through thirty-one.
0: And by the way, he's talking. He's um, starting to exegete Hebrews ten. This is Hebrews ten nineteen.
2: To give this paranetic instruction of both encouragement and warning, and I might read through. Just read through that. Just making brief notes uh, along the way. Uh, to, to really show that, that, that paranetic section, because I think it really contrasts the, the, the Baptistic read sure. of Jeremiah 31 and its quotation there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in verses 16 through 18, we find the, the quote of, of the promise of the new covenant. Nice and then in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, there's there's the Cephalion. He just said it, the high priestly session of Christ. He, Absolutely. He, we can enter into the holy places because he's currently there, and uh, and he is the high priest over the house of God. That's that's the Cephalion. Amen. Now it's going to drive the encouragement he gives. Verse 22, here's the encouragement. Because of this, because of the main point, the kephalion, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, we can say a lot there. There's implications for baptism there. But but let's move on. Uh, Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's our good wilderness works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So so you see there the, 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 the parenetic encouragement based upon the, the, the main point that comes out of the main point. But then there's the, the, the flip side of the paranetic coin, the warnings. That's where he goes to in verse 26 and following. And let me read that. We might, we might camp out here just a little bit longer. We, we might be bumping up against some time issues. But. So one
0: thing to point out, um, Pastor Boothie here does not deal with the first, probably the first half of verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews 10. Completely skips it over. Um, and jumps all the way to verse 19, which has more of the warnings to those in the in the uh, visible church about you know, persevering, holding fast to your confession, and the punishments thereof if you reject this promise or, or this uh, grace there is in Christ. And one thing I want to point out is from chapters 8 through 10, the writer of Hebrews is expo- expounding, upon jeremiah thirty one he lists jeremiah thirty one and he's saying, okay here's what this means. Christ is now the mediator of the new covenant he is a, he has codified this new covenant through his death. He is now the great high priest and then in chapter ten, Christ is uh, noted as having given sacrifice once for all. It says, starting in verse five, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired' But a body you have, have you prepared for me? and burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written into me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, of burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolished the first in order to establish the second. And by the will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So again, we have this soteriological language here in relation to the atonement of Christ. Now, again, does this apply to all people or does this all those who profess the name of Christ, including those who will fall away? Or is this only applying to those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith alone and are truly his? And this is a something that he's going to bring up in a minute about this. uh, Pastor uh, Camden is going to bring up about the sprinkling of the blood of the covenant. If you look in verse 12, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. This is, again, talking about what Christ did on the cross. And then he, exp- he brings up Jeremiah 31 again. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after, uh, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. For after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And then verse 19 comes and he kind of just kind of mentions it, but he doesn't actually exegete it. Clearly, the author is talking here about uh, the the promised salvation through Christ and applying that directly to the new covenant. So how in the world can you have this mixed covenant community when the writer of Hebrews is clearly applying the death of Christ and his sacrificial work on the cross, which is salvific in nature and in no other way can be applied, to the new covenant, which explicitly talks about those being in it as knowing God, those who reject the covenant. I mean, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, these are people who claim to be Christ, who according to these guys would be in the new covenant, right? They would be in the new covenant. They did, they preached, they taught, they did all these things in the name of the Lord, and even in intimate terms, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, I, I, I never knew you. Well, Jeremiah 31 says and Hebrews chapter 8, says, they shall all know me. This is a knowing an intimate knowing in, in, in terms of salvation in a covenant sense. I never knew you. How can that be applicable to a mixed covenant? And so Pastor Boothy here is, is continuing on his argument about the warnings that somehow indicating that there is a mixed community under the new covenant, while completely skipping over from an exegetical perspective anyways. Um, you know, chapters 8, 9, and 10. So I, I think that uh, that addresses what he's talking about here. Anything else you want to add to that, Sean? No. no. Okay. You're ready? And we'll move on to our final clip here. Now, I think this is probably the most important section of what we I wanted would, to discuss. Yeah, I would uh, agree. Because it really, it starts to, it gets into some critical gospel issues here.
2: Which we'll we'll discuss, but you see here that there is covenant curses. You know uh, contra what what uh, Jeffries was saying that I quoted earlier, uh, where he said there is no curse in the new covenant. No, the author of Hebrews is telling us the curse is heightened on account of the fulfillment of Christ. There's no longer a sacrifice that remains, and the curse is heightened. Now you you will experience the very eternal wrath of God. That's that's the heightening of the curse function of the new covenant. And then he goes on to explain the attitude. You want to know what sinning uh, deliberately is after receiving the knowledge of the truth? He tells you in uh, verse uh, 20, 29, he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot, the son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. And so, uh, these are three participial clauses describing the attitude of one who who falls away from the covenant or apostatizes. And um, so their offenses against the person of Christ, they trample underfoot, the son of God, Uh, it's an offense against the work of Christ, the blood of the covenant that once sanctified this apostate, and then the spirit of Christ because they outraged the spirit of grace. And so, uh, it's really helping us to see precisely what type of, what we're falling away from. We're falling away from the covenant, the very blood of the covenant that sanctified this person, that set this person apart into the new covenant. And um, that that one phrase there, that one participial clause is really what got me onto, uh, wanted me to ride on Hebrews. Uh, <laughs> on Jesus. Um it's really astounding what's being said there because that phrase, blood of the covenant, only used a few times in scripture. And, yeah. They're uh, the really
3: author, important places.
2: <laughs> very, very important places. I won't talk about uh, all of them Great. here, but he, the author uses it in the chapter before this one, in chapter nine. And in chapter nine, he is quoting from Exodus 24, which yeah. is the ratification of the old covenant and the blood of the covenant, which blood of bulls uh, being used as the blood of the covenant was sprinkled upon the altar first, and then it was sprinkled upon the people. And that order is significant because uh, sprinkling upon the altar first is, is, is really symbolizing the blood of the divine himself. Of course, pointing forward to the incarnation, uh, the, the God man, but uh, God was present with his people at the altar. Israel had communion with their God at the altar, and so the blood being sprinkled there is to symbolize his own blood being spilt, of course, pointing forward to the Incarnation. But then that blood taken and sprinkled upon the people secondarily, what do we have but a picture of the blood of Christ, which was sprinkled first upon the cross, then sprinkling us. Symbolizing us being set apart unto the new covenant, and that's what the author has in mind here. The blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. See the 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 old covenant, uh, Mosaic covenant ratification. The people being sprinkled with the blood, it was consecrating them. It was sanctifying them in a in a consecrated manner, setting them apart unto the service of God. Right. And our baptism symbolizes that when you sprinkle. Someone, that's symbolizing the blood of Christ. It, it symbolizes many things, yeah. but but one of the things is setting them apart unto the service of God. Right. And so I think that's implied here in what the author is, is saying when he says they're now profaning or calling common the blood of the covenant that once sanctified them,
3: right. set
2: them apart under the service of God. So clearly this person is, is falling away from, a they're apostatizing from the covenant itself. They were set apart into this covenant. And so, again, it's challenging the claim of the particular Baptists.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, yeah, Jesus still uses that phrase, blood of the covenant as well, in the, at the Lord's Supper, when he, when, he's, when he institutes the new covenant, and then the, the author of Hebrews picking up on it. But just to underscore exactly...
0: Except that had to do with his death, which we'll, we'll talk about in a
3: second. ...what you said, but to put a point on it for, for folks trying to follow along. The author of Hebrews is saying there are people who have been sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. The people have been sanctified by the blood of the covenant. That's right there in chapter 10 of Hebrews. He's talking to a new Testament church under the new covenant. And he's likening their blood sprinkling to the people in Exodus 24 who were also sprinkled with blood. But yet later on uh, there was possibility for them to apostatize and to leave
0: no, no, no. <laughs> Can't say no enough on that one. Um, so this, this is a problem because it goes to the heart of the atonement. Now, again, this is where, and I keep saying this, these brothers are trying so hard in Presbyterian Zeus, they're trying so hard to make this apples to apples comparison. This is their hermeneutic. the The Old Covenant must in almost, virtually every way be just like the new. And so in this case, they're talking about the blood of the sacrifices or the, the blood spilled under the old covenant being sprinkled on the people, sanctifying them and setting apart so that the blood of Christ now under the new covenant sets those in the new covenant apart, which according to their view would be those who also can apostatize. And that's, we would say, no one as we just talked about and exegeted in Hebrews 9 and 10, Hebrews 9, 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Did Jesus pay for the transgressions of those who apostatize? According to their view, yes, yes. And I don't think they're, I don't think they're trying to say that, mm. but if you are to take it to its logical conclusion, the blood of Jesus Christ is clearly in view here with regards to the writer of Hebrews. And so if you're going to say that the blood of Christ, which is the blood of the new covenant can be applied to those who fall away, meaning they ultimately never were saved. That implies a a atonement for not just the elect, which is what they would say explicitly, these brothers, they would agree with us on that, that, Christ only died for the elect. But in this case, in the New Covenant, they seem to indicate that that is not the case, that those who apostatize have been sprinkled with the blood of the covenant, which is Christ's blood. And I think that that's dangerous. And I don't think that they are trying to, to say that Christ died for you know those who fall away or those who are not saved. But I think that their thinking goes down that road with the the covenant theology that they've given. And you yeah. end up sounding very... Uh, very in a sense Arminian because an Arminian in essence would hold to this view um, obviously at a bigger level than these brothers with are they're talking about it specifically in the realm of the new covenant but an Arminian would say yeah you know it, it as it relates to everybody Jesus did die for everybody his blood atoned and was applied to everybody even those who reject Christ so it's very similar in that sense um, and I think it's dangerous to go down that road
1: yeah because the author of Hebrews brings it up. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Yes. Christ's can. So right. What he's saying is Christ's blood has been applied to me and sanctified me, but it didn't take away my sin. At which point you're, you're either you have to have two applications of the blood, one just to sanctify you and then one to actually deal with your sins. Or you, you've essentially turned the new covenant back into the old covenant where Jesus' blood cannot take away your sins. And, that and that's and the
0: writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins,
1: mm-hmm.
0: waiting uh, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, and that is directly applied in verse sixteen and seventeen to the new covenant community. Though he'll put his law in their hearts, and he'll remember their sins and their lawless needs no more. So unless you're going to say that Jesus paid for the sins of people who fall away in hell, and we've dealt with that, uh, that inconsistency, that unbiblical view in, uh, in a previous episode, um, then you are, are really being inconsistent. You're being inconsistent uh, with the very book that you're trying to use to back up your position. But again, they don't exegete any of these passages. They allude to Jeremiah 31 in chapter 10, but they don't go through it and explain why. From the text itself, this is talking about their position. Mm-hmm. Now, this is why, again, hermeneut- a hermeneutical methodology that is takes the clear passages of Scripture to interpret the unclear, You know, especially a, a proper view of the atonement, which we get from other places in Scripture and the implications thereof, we have to remember those when we are talking about covenant theology. You have to, or you end up falling into inconsistencies like these uh, brothers have. Uh,
1: yeah. Um, so... I uh, I want to bring up two passages, uh, and then uh, I'm I'm basically done for what I wanted to say. Yep. Um, maybe a little bit of a comment also on Jeremiah 31, but uh, uh, then we're done, at least from my perspective. Um, first passage, we actually already read, um, and that's back to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Um, oh, was it 3? Oh, yeah, it, it was 3. Uh, starting at verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And I, I guess I should have backed up a little bit uh, starting verse 10. For as many are, uh, as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Uh, so he's, he's once again talking about the curse of the law. And then uh, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us, from the curse of the law. Now, what does that mean? The us has to refer to him and the Galatians, the Galatians being Gentiles. So is Paul saying that in some sense, the curse, the covenant curse, because this was given in the context of the Mosaic covenant is applied to the Gentiles. So can you have a covenant, a curse applied to you that you're not a part of the covenant from which the curse comes from? And the answer at least in this case is is yes, why? because there's a, excluding Christ, there was only one other way to be saved to get to heaven, and that's to keep the law perfectly and right. that that was whether or not you were in that covenant or not, and the uh, Gentiles they didn't even know about the covenant, let alone be able to keep it uh, in its entirety, so they have that curse applied to them, even though they're not members of the 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 new covenant. So for, um, pastor Boothby to bring up covenant curses, well, you can have a curse associated with you that, uh, for not keeping part of the covenant, but you're not even in the covenant. Like that, that's, that's a, a real category of something to have for the unbeliever, uh, for, for somebody who is never a part of the new covenant, they can have this curse applied to them Uh, that uh, they will never receive forgiveness of sins. There's no longer a sacrifice. They will go to hell. Yeah. And that that brings me to the other passage I wanted to bring up. Matthew uh, 12, starting at verse 31. And this is in the context of talking about uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven to him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So my question is, were, were the people he was talking to in the New Covenant? Well, obviously not. Um, he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are not in the New Covenant. But he's saying, you can commit a sin now that will result in you never being forgiven. And as as Hebrews uh, says in um, in chapter 10 uh where is it um oh where was it um uh there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin why why can't uh the Pharisees be saved if they blaspheme the holy spirit cuz th- there's no longer a sacrifice for sins for them that doesn't mean they were in the new covenant uh a a curse can happen to someone who's not in the new covenant uh because in this case they profess to be the people of god and they had a level of knowledge mm-hmm. um just like as it says in verse 26, for if we sin willfully after having received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The Pharisees had a level of knowledge. They saw Jesus working his miracles, and for them to deny it was to sin against the Holy Spirit who, um, who uh, communicates truth Attributing to Attributing his work to Satan. Yeah, exactly. So you don't have to be a part of the covenant to experience wrath from sinning against that covenant. You can be outside the covenant and sin against it. You can, um, uh, you can look at the covenant, know what it is, like, oh, wow, forgiveness of sins, that's great, and walk away. And you may never have been in that covenant. Um, from their perspective, uh, you need to be baptized to enter the covenant. You may never have been baptized, but you can walk away having sinned against that covenant because you counted it a vain thing when it was eternal life, it was the forgiveness of sins. What is, what is better than this? You can, you can sin against the covenant without being in the covenant and thus receive the wrath, the wrath of vengeance is mine. I will repay. Uh, and even, uh, and again, the Lord will judge his people, his people in what sense? Um, this is a, a picture of what happened before. From the you're, claiming, you're, you're claiming to be part of the people of God. Well, it's, it's right. not good.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, um, Reformation study Bible says the two quotations from the song of Moses Mm -hmm. show that God is ready to judge according to his covenant, discriminating those who are truly his own from apostates. This is just simply talking, God weeding out those who claim the name of Christ, but will weed out those who, uh, apostatize from those who are truly his, i.e. part of the new covenant.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It's just simply Uh judgment.
1: I I actually, I did forget. I I want to say one more thing um, because he does bring up at least a a point that on its surface does seem to make sense. Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common common thing. So we've already said that we don't believe that when the blood is applied to you, what um, that uh, you can uh, fall away because uh, we we do believe in a, a limited particular atonement. So what do we think is actually going on in this passage? And uh, it's funny because Pastor Camden almost brought it up—the the the idea that this is also the same language in the Lord's Supper. Uh, So my question Mm -hmm. is: Could you participate in the Lord's Supper and thus, in a sense, be sanctified because you're you're presenting yourself as uh, set apart for God uh, when you are not a member of the New Covenant? I have to say, even the Presbyterians would have to admit this because you can have somebody walk into a congregation. and profess to be a christian and they weren't even baptized and partake and for all the world knows that that person is uh is- um is a a new covenant christian right um and they're making profession that i i am sanctified i've i've been set apart i'm partaking of the lord's blood and uh it's not true so uh it, we we believe it in that sense that um just the mere saying of you're, you're participating in it in a, in a sense is sanctifying if that makes sense you might have a slightly different view dan i don't know but that would be my thought about that
0: no uh, no I, I think that's true because the the lord's supper certainly does communicate the gospel to us and that's mm-hmm. exactly what our confession says and it, i guess it would be sanctifying in that sense but not in in the same sense as the old Testament sacrifices where it's communicating some sort of actual grace as they seem to imply here. Um, I think there's a big difference between the two people who are true believers are the ones who are supposed to be partaking in the Lord's supper, not a mixed community. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though we visibly can't necessarily uh, determine who those are 100%. And that would be in relation to the invisible church. So yeah, I, I think that's consistent. Alrighty. All right. I know this. Thank you, everyone, for bearing with us. I know this was a long episode, but it, again, this is a topic that requires careful consideration, requires a lot of thought, a lot of exegesis, careful discussion. Um, and again, th- this is not meant to bash our Presbyterian brethren. They are our brothers, but we, um, we think we should point out these significant differences. Uh, but thank you for joining us today, and Lord willing, we will be back next week. Um, have a great weekend.
1: Have